we were pretty disciplined around two dimensions that we thought were really important as a framework. One, will this help us acquire more customers or will this help us build product faster? If it doesn't hit on these two things directly, we did not pay attention and we did not care. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, how do they win? This week, Mark Schopmeyer, co-founder and co-CEO of Captivate IQ, the commission management platform built to help revenue teams power their incentive programs. Captivate IQ has grown to over 250 employees since their founding in 2017. They've just closed their Series C funding at 100 million, raised with a valuation of 1.25 billion. In this episode, we discuss how Captivate IQ maintains an edge on the competition and their commitment to innovation in order to stay ahead of where the market is going. Let's get into it. When we were in the beginning, we knew the problem pretty well because our background between Conway, myself, and Huber, we used to manage commissions in a prior life. And so one of the things that was really important to us was we wanted to build a solution that we would have used. And if you take us back to that journey, we didn't have this vision of, we're going to build this multi-billion dollar company and sell products all around the world. We had this very, very simple goal and might be laughable now, but it's just like, let's just get one customer. And if we can get them happy, we feel like we would have achieved our objective on, you know, something that was really important for us. And so that was uh, the start of Captivate IQ. Now, I think the the fun thing that uh, we could probably share a little bit more in our conversation is that first iteration is not the product that we currently have today. Even though we come from the problem, which was very helpful, I think there's an important lesson of continue to be iterative, continue to be dynamic. So today we are on version three of that product vision, which I think is pretty telling in how we had to challenge ourselves to be responsive to what we've been learning when we interact with customers. So what was the version one and then walk us through the, the version two and three and uh, what type of signals and data and, and whatever went into it, decision-making did you use to come to those? Yeah, so version one was based on this concept of SQL. And the vision we had was everyone has a data science team. And one of the challenges was for commissions platform to be dynamic enough to serve any type of commissions plan that you see at a company how do you uh, respond to that uh, with your platform to enable people to do that easily and allow it to be flexible to be as accommodating? And so we believe at the time SQL was super ubiquitous and it was a late, and it would enable companies to be that dynamic. And you can leverage an in-house framework, aka like a lot of data science engineering teams with no SQL, so that you wouldn't have this heavy lift of learning the product or learning a coding language. The challenge that we had at the time was, obviously, that's very isolated to tech. And if we believe we wanted to go after a much bigger opportunity, we need to make this more dynamic. So we shifted to version two. That was when we started our Y Combinator journey with this notion of what if we could build building blocks? And if you believe commission plans are really a construct of a series of building blocks that you can stitch together and then maybe leverage, you know, if you had a library of building blocks, every company can take these building blocks and reassemble their commission plan. So that worked out really great up until it didn't. And the one of the challenges that we learned was that 
these building blocks, they're highly custom, oftentimes so custom to the company itself. And you require engineering resources in the back end to be able to assemble these building blocks for these companies. So basically think of it as for every onboarding, we would have a business analyst and we'd have an engineer, which is not really scalable from a unit economic perspective. So we challenged ourselves once more, which was, what is the problem that we're trying to face here? Why do we have engineering resources to begin with? And the, the key thing that we learned was that data doesn't come in the form that you need it in. You know, it's a classic problem within companies. So we had this vision going back to our roots when we were managing this stuff in spreadsheets, which was we would get data out of a data system and then we would transform it. So what if we could take that and build on that? You know, in the business user context, we're just doing transformations to get the data into the form that we needed it. And that became the basis and the baseline for version three of our product, which is what we have today. Were these changes and the evolution uh, driven by the market and customer feedback? You know, to be honest, I think a lot of it was us challenging ourselves. Maybe as a quick background, Conway and I in particular, we have much more of a finance background. So by default, we have this knack for extrapolating. You know, what does this look like at scale? What does this look like with 10, 100, 200, 1,000 customers? YC teaches you to, or Y Combinator teaches you to do things that don't scale. And that's very true to kind of learn everything, but eventually you need to do things that do scale. So while some of it was driven by the market, like for example, it has to be easy to use, it has to be very flexible, and those are table stakes. You can't have a commissions platform if one year it works and then they update the commission plans and it doesn't work and the software can't accommodate it. Like that's silly, right? So there's feedback like that that I think we took uh, to heart. But at the end of the day, I think we knew that we need to build a business. We need to build an enduring company. We needed to do build something that would scale. And so, you know, I think the, the one key lesson that we had, sometimes you'll hit a fork in the road and it's a really tough decision. And so for us, version two was that fork in the road. We asked ourselves, like, it is fact. If we continue with version two, we will not be a company. Sure, we'll, we have investor money. We just closed a seed round. But fast forward a year, we're going to burn all this money and we're not going to have scalable unit economics. No one's going to want to invest or be supportive of this company. It's just not going to exist. So you look at that and you're like, how do we make the hard decision? What is the right decision there? And the right decision was to figure out a way to make this more scalable. If you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. That's a quote by Reid Hoffman that I've thought about often, especially when I'm on the verge of launching a new product or company. When I was bringing Winter out of private beta, I was like, this is not ready. He has so many issues. But we had been building already for quite some time. I knew that speeding up customer feedback loops is going to be massive. And I knew the impact real customer feedback is going to have on the team. So we launched. Of course we weren't ready. It wasn't an instant success. But we learned so much. In fact, we learned that some of our major hypotheses, like who's the customer going to be, was dead wrong. And five months later, we changed direction. We focused on B2B, changed a bunch of things about the product, and the business took off. Once you got your first customer, obviously it wasn't game over. What did you do marketing sales-wise to you know, get your first million? Our investors who might be listening to this might 
chuckle. Uh, we had a really a very weird problem. We did not do a lot on the marketing side in the early days, probably to a fault. In the early days, there was one point in time where I remember our, our, our VP of sales, Christian Borelli, and I were, were chatting about, you know, at the time you're doing founder selling and then you have you know another colleague that's selling with you. And at the time you're doing full cycle sales. Everyone is selling. And for us, the funny joke internally was that we were full cycle sales and we we're implementing our own products. So we were actually taking on quite a bit of work ourselves. It's important to do that because you need to get familiar with the motions. You need to get familiar with what's working and adjust, but also just internalize a lot of the things that are going on uh, within the company, the product, uh, how people are responding, messaging, et cetera. When you have a foundation of that, it doesn't mean it needs to be perfect. Then you start to pull apart this uh, look at it and say, like, what can we operationalize or start operationalizing? And Christian and I had this long debate, like, hey, I think it's time to bring in BDRs. When you're early as a startup, you're like, oh, man, we need to invest more people. Like, are we ready? But we looked at the math and you're like, yeah, it makes sense. It's a no regret move to start investing BDRs to take apart one part of our sales cycle and operationalize it, get people who are better at it to improve that process, streamline it and really drive that. So the BDR motion was where we started first. It worked out very, very, very well. Inbound versus outbound. It was the lion's share of how we drove the business earlier on. And from our investors who saw their portfolio companies drive a lot more inbound versus outbound, we were doing the opposite and we just kept doubling down. And so today, like it's still a very important part of our motion. It's very successful. We're now continuing to do a little bit more broadly on the marketing side. But you know, I think. The key lesson here is if you find something that's working, it's very important to double down on it. To double down on something, you often need to bring on more people. You as a founder don't scale, plus you're only good at so many things. And you can't get far with mediocrity. So bringing in people that are smarter and better than you in specific areas is the way to go. Sell the company to top talent. They'll outperform you in their area of expertise, and they'll also raise the bar for performance standards across the company. Here's Jack Ma, co-founder and former executive chairman of Alibaba, explaining why he always tries to hire people who know more than him and how he sees his role as their manager. I know nothing about technology. I know nothing about management. I know nothing about... But the only thing is that you don't have to know a lot of things. You have to find the people who are smart than you are. My first way is always find people who knowledge on computer smart than I am. Accounting, smart than for so many years, I always try to find the people smarter than I am. And when you find so many smart people, my job is to making sure the smart people can work it together. And then if smart people can work it together, it's easier. The vision they will believe. How big of a part of your revenue today is, is outbound versus inbound? It's historically, if you look at the last two years, it used to be about 70, 30. In the last year, I think it was about getting up to 60, 40. This year, we're targeting to be more 50, 50. I think over time, we'll see marketing shift to be much more of a heavier mix of that just because by design, a lot of stuff is more organic. There should be much more reach uh, more broadly, especially from verticals or segmentations or geographically. But today, it is, uh, it is still heavier outbound with a path towards getting more half-half. 
On the inbound front, what are you guys doing? We started our building our marketing team probably the last 18 months uh, or so, maybe two years at this point. You know, I think what's what we started on is just getting the awareness out for the brand. So we started on software review sites like G2, Captera. My understanding is we're number one on a number of those, like Gartner's Peer Insights is a is a new one that came out uh, that we've been focusing on. And I think we're number one on that one. Besides that, organic Google traffic has been a big focus for us, as well as paid. Our focus over this coming year is how do we build more organic through content, through providing really unique insights, you know, around webinars, what are we learning, what are we seeing, and driving conversations there. G2, Captera, and others like that are increasingly unhelpful when it comes to comparing tools. Most everyone has fantastic reviews because they're solicited from happy customers. If you have a below 4.0 rating on those platforms, you must be objectively terrible. Companies need to look for other ways to differentiate, and building up brand through organic marketing and content is a popular choice. These days, most successful B2B companies are all in with their content marketing across a variety of mediums blog, podcast, video, organic social events, and so on. They use the content as a brand mode, as well as to build mental availability. But keep in mind, everyone is doing content way better today than they did 10 years ago, and you need to be better than ever as well. You know, how do you think about differentiation and, and winning business? How do you stay competitive? We just go back to our core roots. Like We come from this problem, and... To be honest, like I don't know how many uh, vendors out there that can really say that. In fact, a stat that we we share internally is about 40% of our employee base comes from the problem. We all kind of internalize the same goal. One of the unique ways that we've tried to that we're tackling the problem is that a lot of the vendors out there take much more of an object-oriented approach. If you're familiar with Salesforce, Salesforce is object-oriented, right? What was really important for us was Again, being flexible, accommodating commission plan, but also that ease of use. Roughly 70, 80% of the market comes from spreadsheets. So how, you know, why is that? And why is that still like a very, very popular solution? Because it's super flexible and because most people know how to use it. You probably know how to use it. I know how to use it. A lot of people, our company knows how to use it. So what's wrong with it? It just doesn't scale very well. And that's why we had this problem in the beginning. Like spreadsheets does not scale when you have 100, 200, 1,000, 10,000 reps. So we've taken these elements and we built what we believe is more like a modeling solution. We believe commissions a modeling exercise. In our opinion, we don't believe any other vendor has philosophically or built their product in the same way as that. So in itself, there's an inherent differentiation around how we've gone to market. We are kind of that lone wolf trying to approach that in that methodology. This is where coming from the problem helps a lot. If you have a lot of conviction around what you're doing and you're taking a different path, the only way you're uncomfortable with it is that, hey, I've done this before. I know like going back to my old role or to all of our old roles, we feel like this is how we would would have wanted to do this versus the alternative. And so I think that's probably the most fundamental piece around differentiation for us. And part of it is we're still improving our storytelling on the on our website and product marketing and messaging around that. But once you go into that first demo, you see our product, your first reaction, and it's I would say it's it's very noticeable. It's, it does elicit this reaction. It's like, oh wow, I get what you guys mean. 
It has a spreadsheet-like interface in key parts. There is this modeling aspect. It brings in this uh, Excel-like syntax. So, you know, it is something that is very noticeable when you go into a product about how it works and, and it's fundamentally, it look different and feel different than any other product. Today in tech, there's a common belief that products are pretty easy to copy. So how are you thinking about, you know, five, 10 years into the future? Uh, are you building any moats or what are your thoughts? You're right. Products are easy to copy. You know, you've seen this even in the big scale between features between like an iPhone and an Android phone. One starting point is I do think it does come down to the leadership team and the company philosophies and what drives them. I say that because there is an element of culture around vision that will always hopefully give you that edge. You can't predict copying. You can only copy what's known, which takes time to assess and then you know, assign a team to go literally copy. So you're always going to be factually behind. So if you really play that out, if done well, a company that is a category leader or that is super innovative and has a culture around being innovative, they should by design always be ahead of the pack. And so our hope is that as a product focus and product led company, we can continue to have that as a key part of our DNA. Beyond that, you do have to keep thinking about the market. And where is the market going? Listening to your customers. It's very rare that a customer will say, you've got the best product, please don't do anything more. There's always better things to do. There's always uh, evolving things in the market. And more importantly, there's things that even customers don't see and don't know about that you will have to see and take you know, pattern recognition. Hey, here's where I think the industry is going in three to five years. And we can make this even better by maybe going into this adjacent market and providing a little bit broader of a platform. Or we believe how people are going to operate is going to be changing in three years. We're going to start building something around this that positions us in a way that is going to make our customers even more successful. I think if you keep thinking about those things, I think you will inherently have a competitive advantage. Bet on things far into the future it'll arrive sooner than you expect. The future is an unknown, but you can be prepared. So when enough evidence surfaces, you can pounce. Create as many future scenarios as possible. Disprove them as soon as possible. Hold strong opinions weekly. Innovation can be a huge growth driver, but not without direction. The other way to say plan for the future is to say build and execute a strategy. The innovations aren't your strategy, but rather how you adapt your core strategy and react to shifts in the market landscape. Harvard professor and author David Collins explains. The practice of strategy in most companies is there is an existent strategy. It might be poorly articulated and communicated, but most companies have a strategy. The practice of strength, the way you experience it as a manager is there is some shift in the external environment or what I call the opportunity set. And you then have to adapt what goes on inside your company to take advantage of that. You don't change the strategy, but you change important aspects of the activities of the firm. So the classic one for me here would be like Burger King adopting mobile ordering technology. Burger King is not going to change its strategy. They're not going to go away from low-cost hamburgers targeted at high-volume consuming males, age 18, whatever it is. But 
the decision to add in mobile ordering has strategic implication, and that requires continuous adaptation. What are you guys doing specifically to ensure that you guys are innovative and then you move fast, that you don't get stuck in bureaucracies and SOPs slowing you down like that happens to a lot of companies? I do think it's really, really important to evangelize, one, the mission and have a mission. I think that's a starting point because that gets people bought into the bigger problem. You know, why are we doing what we're doing and where do we want to go with this? I think the second step is to continue to iterate on where you think the company is going and where you think the industry is heading into. Those two things, I think, are going to be the biggest drivers in terms of staying innovative, staying ahead of the problem and bringing it back to the company and laying out the trajectory of how you want to get there. Beyond that, just continue to build out the teams and continue to accelerate on a broader vision. There are a bunch of players in, in your space. Why have you guys succeeded where some others haven't done? You know, I look back at the space, and the space is an older space. In fact, it's one of the older software spaces. In my opinion, it started back in the 90s with Trilogy Software. There's kind of been this long lineage. You can almost tie it back to one company through a series of companies. Beyond that, there's been a longer tail of just smaller startups. And I think the challenge has been people bluntly put are kind of naive to the complexity of the problem. What ends up happening a lot of times is that people want to tackle this problem. And they try to tackle this with a standard approach that they think is going to solve a lot of the commission plans. And it becomes a rude awakening. Wow, this is a really hard problem. This next customer we signed is doing this really differently than the previous customer. Everything about our product needs to be kind of thought differently to accommodate this other customer. So that's part one. Then the part two is, okay, what if you took it and just made it really custom? Well, then no one knows how to use it. And I think that's where the industry has come from, where the other players came from. It's top end of the market, serving you know top Fortune 100s, 250s, et cetera. Like exactly the first customer or earliest customer was Salesforce and just grew with that. And that's continued to be one of their largest customers. If you think about what that means, you know, commission plans don't change as often as a smaller startup that's trying to be nimble. And so you can lean on big SIs like Accenture, Deloitte to make these changes at scale because you have a budget for it. You probably have a little bit longer of a, uh, of a cycle to roll these changes out. Maybe it's once every year, maybe it's once every two years. So the type of product that's needed is different. So where we have come into play and I think where the industry is heading is, look, mid-market's much more dynamic. There's a lot of unique requirements. And I think the product we've had is this right balance of ease of use as well as super flexible. In my opinion, that's the key to the game around this stuff. So if we don't think about sales compensation, but you know, building a, a B2B SaaS company, what are, what are some pieces of advice you would have for fellow founders? You know, what pieces of wisdom would you pass on? One, starting out, I think it's always a thoughtful approach to being open-minded to problems. And in particular, I mentioned earlier about how Y Combinator, one of their core tenets is do things that don't scale. It really helps. It helps you think about, let's just get to this motion so we can fully understand the problem. So how to get things going and then starting to operationalize those pieces. Earlier on, we were very disciplined in a couple of ways. 
And so imparting some advice around that. In the early days of a startup, it's very easy to see the shiny objects in the room around you. Maybe Salesforce reaches out to you and they want to talk about a BD relationship. You know, that could be interesting, but that's another meeting. That's another time commitment that you have to take. So we were pretty disciplined around two dimensions that we thought were really important as a framework. One, will this help us acquire more customers or will this help us build product faster? If it doesn't hit on these two things directly, we did not pay attention and we did not care. And I think that allowed us to be very focused and nimble. I think the third dimension that really helped, and this is something that I think plays into our backgrounds between Elise Conway and myself, we're very fortunate to have a finance or FP&A background. And I say that because even before we created the company, we had a budget. We've had a budget every year. We budget actually twice a year, as insane as it sounds. But if you think about a startup, like how do you make decisions? How do you know whether to do something or not? How do you know whether to invest or build out a new program? It's so much easier if you can have a model in front of you to look at the numbers and say like, look, yeah, the ROI, it's a no regret move. That's one of our you know, favorite things to think. So we've always tried to build that philosophy into a lot of things that we do. We have this uh, belief that a lot of strategy can be solved by numbers, you know, planning out like, hey, what do we need to believe for this to be true? Or what is, how do these things affect our unit economics and our storytelling? It sounds like that's something that you'd expect as a later stage company, but as crazy as it sounds, we started doing all of that in the early days, which made decision-making uh, a lot more black and white. I think the last thing I can impart, I think, is there's a notion in product management called being first principles. You know, for us, we try to be first principle, have a first principles mindset around a lot of the, how we operate, how we make decisions. I think it's easy for companies or leaders, especially when you bring in outside leaders, to be assumptive. Oh, I did this at another company, so it should be true here. That's very dangerous. It's really, really good to be first principles mindset or have a first principles mindset, look at the problem, break it down to its basic building blocks, and really tackle what you believe will get alignment, but really tackle on what you believe are the core problems and not core problems. It makes things a lot more black and white and much more clear when it comes to making the right decision at the end of the day. So, what are three key strategies Captivate IQ has found success with? One, they launched quickly with a version of the product that worked, but continued to invest in a scalable version that would take them into the future. We asked ourselves, like, it is fact, if we continue with version two, we will not be a company. And no one's going to want to invest or be supportive of this company. It's just not going to exist. So you look at that and you're like, how do we make the hard decision? What is the right decision there? And the right decision was to figure out a way to make this more scalable. Two, they aligned as a company through a deep shared understanding of the problem they are addressing for their customers. We just go back to our core roots. We come from this problem. And to be honest, like I don't know how many vendors out there that can really say that. In fact, 40% of our employee base comes from the problem, which is massive. And so we all kind of internalize the same goal. Three, they made an early bet on investing in outbound sales that paid off. Christian and I had this long debate like, hey, I think it's time to bring in BDRs. When you're early as a startup, you're like, oh man, we need to invest more people, like are we ready? But we looked at the math and you're like, yeah, it makes sense. It's a no regret move. It worked out very, very, very well. 
inbound versus outbound. It was the lion's share of how we drove the business earlier on. One last takeaway from Mark. I think even though we come from the problem, which was very helpful, I think there's an important lesson of continue to be iterative, continue to be dynamic. So today we are on version three of that product vision, which I think is pretty telling in how we had to challenge ourselves to be responsive to what we've been learning when we interact with customers. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Loya. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.